This is Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge on News Talk 770 Radio, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. Uh, but off the top in this hour, a fascinating new book. It's getting a lot of attention. Now, there's, I, I suppose, a provocative idea at the center of this all, and it involves free will. But it's a fascinating look at how biology has shaped our behavior, our behavior as a species. So how do we understand the way we act, the decisions we make, what we like, what we don't like? A lot of it comes down to biology, and and it's not something we tend to think of in exploring these questions. We think about social pressure, societal pressure, cultural pressure. But I guess at the end of the day, I mean, we're the ones who shape all of that, aren't we? So it comes down to understanding human behavior and how it has evolved. And biology explains a lot of that. Uh, the book is called Behave, the Biology of Humans at Our Best and Worst. Uh, joining us on the line is the author uh, of this book. Uh, Robert Sapolsky joins us. He's a professor of biology, professor of neurology, professor of neurosurgery at Stanford University. Robert, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Great. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Uh, certainly, I mean, <laughs> the, the one takeaway, I guess, from, from all of this is that we as humans, I mean, we're, we're very complicated beings, aren't we? Well, yes, I, I, I think if one can reduce this very lengthy book into just the soundbite, yeah, it's complicated. It's terribly complicated because uh, insofar as we are biological organisms, the biological influences on us are ones ranging from what our neurons are up to a second before behavior to millions of years of evolutionary pressures and everything in between. And consistently, biological influences that we would never have guessed have anything to do with our ongoing behaviors. Right. Now, it's interesting because uh, we, we did a, a subject recently, uh, some new research on memories and understanding how memories are created, how memories are stored. Uh, and it's one tiny portion of, of what our brains do every day. But it's, it's just fascinating how complex it all is and, and how little we know about it. Right. I mean, you, you know, we talk about humans as complex. I mean, really, what we're saying is that our brains are incredibly complex. Incredibly complex, and part of what has to sort of stop when you, someone in their tracks when they think about, well, what do we understand about why people do what they do, is an incredible percentage of our knowledge about the biology behavior has come in the last 10 years, 20 years, 50 years. We're learning about biological stuff where we never even used to suspect it existed, let alone had something to do with behaviors we would view as essential to who we are. Now, there's certain things I, I think that, that we're almost hardwired to do or to think or in, in ways that we act. But at the same time, there, there's a lot of uh, societal pressure, a lot of social pressure uh, on us and, and on developing brains. So w- which is the more important factor? Well, of course, my, my nice professorial response would be both, because they're completely intertwined and very difficult to separate. I mean, one, one of the best ways of appreciating this when it comes to aspects of our behavior that seem hardwired, virtually inevitable, um, is it's a human universal, it's a primate social universal to, in effect, 
divide the world into us's and them's and to like the us's a whole lot more and preferentially cooperate with them and to think the them's are intrinsically lousy and untrustworthy and count less when they hurt and it's incredible how automatically we humans make us them distinctions we process a face and if it's a face of an other by various different categories our brains have processed this in a hundred milliseconds a tenth of a second hormones are influencing that incredibly automatic stuff so just when you're sitting there and you're about to despair that certain of our like worst us thems along lines of race, gender, ethnicity, age, whatever are inevitable, along with that comes an observation that while it's very hardwired enough to make us them distinctions, we humans are incredibly easily manipulated at times within seconds as to who counts as an us or who is a them. And yesterday's them that you're willing to become bloodied over in terms of your differences in a slightly different setting and manipulations and such, and you completely recategorize where the us-them divide is. Obviously, there's uh, an advantage, or there would have been an advantage to, to being a part of a tribe and having an us and growing up in a society. Humans do not do well in isolation. So there's evolutionary pressure there, isn't there? Absolutely. And in that regard, we're just like lots of other primates who make us them distinctions and can be murderously violent to thems, males from another group and all of that. Where we're totally different, though, is... We all belong to multiple tribes all at once. Those of us who are of a particular gender or a particular religion or language group, those of us who like broccoli more than cauliflower, those of us who root for one sports team over another one, and we carry all these different categories of us, thems, in our heads, and which one is most important can change in a second. And one, one study that I love that demonstrates this is you put people in a brain scanner and it shows you activity, metabolic activity, activity in different parts of the brain in real time. And one of the most depressing, consistent findings in this field is you flash up faces at rapid speed to people and you flash up a face of a different race. And in your average test subject, this causes automatic rapid activation of a part of the brain called the amygdala, which has to do with fear and anxiety and aggression. Oh my God, that's incredibly depressing. Are we hardwired to make us them distinctions along the lines of race? No, because then you follow up that study and now you're flashing up faces of same race versus other race and half of each of the subjects, this was an American study, are wearing baseball caps of the home team and half were wearing baseball caps of whoever the hated rival team was. And if you get the rightly sort of rabbit crazed baseball fan in the brain scanner there, you completely recategorize regardless of the person's face. If they're wearing the baseball cap of the hated rivals, that's what activates the amygdala. Whoa, millions of years of evolution making us inevitably hostile along lines of skin color. Nah, that evaporates in a second along another tribe that sort of certain types of sports fans carry in their head. Who's in us and who's in them changes in an instant. 
Well, and I, I, maybe the response would be, or, or our impulse would be to think, well, we can choose to overcome that. But how much of this do we choose? I mean, it gets down to a pretty fundamental question here of, do, do we have free will as human? <clears throat> well, th- this, is, this is where, sort of as a, as a biologist, who's been studying this for years, what neurons, what genes, what hormones, what early experience, what culture, evolution, ecological influences, all of them play a role in it. And all of them play roles that we can be perfectly unaware of, yet are determining our behaviors. What I do at this point, if I'm trying to be like sort of amenable and a good guest or whatever, is saying, well, you know, if there is free will, it's in some pretty unexciting places these days. If you want to, like, say it was free will while you brushed your lower teeth before your upper teeth today, rather than the other way around, okay. But most certainly free will is getting cramped into tighter and tighter places as we learn more about sort of the biology. Personally, my view is free will is simply the biology we haven't discovered yet. And that seems very straightforward and simple to me by now. What's anything but straightforward is how we're supposed to function believing that there is no free will. And I sure have trouble doing that, and I even believe all this stuff. What's clear amid that, though, is when we have to do the heavy lifting of really working through where our biological imperatives versus whatever might be this thing that we cling on to calling free will, we've got to be real careful with that when we're judging other people's behaviors harshly, because that's where it matters. Well, what, what is consciousness then, or how would you define it? Oh, God, that one I'm too afraid to go anywhere near <laughs> with a 10-foot pole. That's, because that's I think people like, assume that, that they go hand in hand, that, that if we have consciousness, we have free will. But... We really don't, and the way to best appreciate it is to look at just sort of the array of things out there that influence our behavior where we have no idea it's happening. Obvious ones, what the levels are of various hormones in our bloodstream, determine, for example, you take a guy and you raise his testosterone levels and you very rapidly flash up pictures of faces with facial expressions and somebody with a neutral facial expression and if you've raised somebody's testosterone levels he's more likely to decide that that face has a threatening expression oh here's why here's my rational reason no it's because the levels of some hormone marinating your brain change the excitability of neurons in your amygdala or give somebody some foul-tasting drink to take, and they swallow a bit of it before deciding it's disgusting, and for minutes afterward, they judge a social, um, sort of a social violation, they judge it more harshly, and would punish it more harshly, because they're having a sense of disgust at the time. Put people around a bus stop, and if you put up a poster showing a pair of human eyes looking out, and people litter less. Or a study that just flabbergasts me in terms of sort of its implications. This was a very important study published in a very prestigious journal. This looked at, it was carried out in Israel, and it looked at all of the parole board hearings in that country over the course of a year. 
and these were 5,000 cases. That's a big sample size for doing a study. And looking at when did a prisoner get parole and when did a prisoner get sent back to jail. And it turned out the single best predictor of what a judge would decide was how many hours it had been since they had eaten a meal. Come before a judge right after lunch and you had like a 60% chance of getting parole. Come to the judge right before and you had essentially a 0% chance. What's amazing is, number one, we understand the biology of what blood glucose levels have to do with how certain parts of the brain function that have to do with taking somebody else's perspective on things. But what's equally amazing is if you took one of those judges two seconds after they made that decision and asked, okay, so why did you decide that? And they were going to be citing philosophers they learned in like freshman year of college and they would have after the fact been coming up with a rationalization a conscious one which they passed off as rationality instead and in this case it was your blood glucose levels how influencing how readily you can empathize with somebody else and we sit there at a juncture like that and we fill it in with an artificial sense of volition and call that free will because it feels to us like we're, we're consciously making decisions. It absolutely feels that way, but put somebody in a brain scanner when they're making, for example, moral judgments about transgressions, and the emotional parts of the brain are activating milliseconds before sort of the conscious cortical parts of the brain. An awful lot of the time what we're doing is playing catch-up to our biological impulses and then figuring out why this actually makes perfect sense. Well, and you alluded to this already. I mean, it, it, it almost seems like a necessary illusion uh, that we have an entire society, certainly an entire criminal justice uh, system that's premised on the idea of free will. And, and I guess if it's, if, if it's shown not to exist, then, then we've got a big problem. We've got a very big problem there at that point. We've got a huge problem, and just as sort of one very concrete sort of feature of this enormous problem. Okay, so an awful lot of this revolves around a part of the brain called the frontal cortex, which has to do with making you do the harder thing when it's the right thing to do. Impulse control, gratification, postponement, self-control, emotional regulation. You get somebody with their frontal cortex damaged and they can perfectly lucidly tell you the difference between right and wrong and what an optimal behavior is under different circumstances. And at the juncture where the behavior occurs, they nonetheless can't regulate their behavior. And extraordinarily, in the United States, approximately 25% of the men on death row facing execution have a history of concussive head trauma to their frontal cortex. And then we put them in front of a criminal justice system that believes in things like souls and evil and punishment for its own sake and stuff that is completely incompatible with 21st century science. Well, but I guess the other side of it is then if we conclude that people who do bad things can't help but do bad things, the only way to keep society safe is to lock those people up, lock them up indefinitely. Or the metaphor that I always think of with that is, like, if you have a car whose brakes have failed, like, it's dangerous. You don't let it out on the street. It will kill people. And you have one of two choices then. If you can fix the brake abnormality in the car, you do so, but if you can't, if you don't have the means of understanding the cause of this car pathology, you lock it away in a garage for the rest of the time. 
but never once would you consider sitting there and saying the car deserves to be locked away. And, you know, one of the critiques at that point is people throw up their hands and say, oh, my God, it is so dehumanizing to think of us as machines in that regard. That's a hell of a lot better than sermonizing us into being evil when it's a biological abnormality that we're dealing with. Because there is still a, a uniqueness to being human, right? Because that's certainly not, not the point of your book, is to take away from that. No, of course. And sort of when you look closely... Um, What's remarkable is how much our behaviors are on a continua with other species. Um, other primate species show lots of the fundamentals that we see as definedly human and not just like making tools and not just being violent and murderous, but elements of compassion, elements of altruism, elements of a sense of justice. And then you look really closely at us, and what's the most impressive thing is how we take those like deeply ancient primate features of us and just extend it in incredible directions that no like baboon would ever consider. I mean, there's lots of other primate species that do compassionate things when they have a group member who's in a miserable state of mind. They'll go over and groom the individual, whatever. We're the only species who could feel compassionate about a horse that's being mistreated, a member of another species, or to feel pain for, oh my God, those poor people when in Pompeii, when Vesuvius erupted, it must have been so frightening those last two seconds. They lived 2,000 years ago, or a character in a movie who isn't real, there's just a bunch of pixels. And we take this very ancient primate wiring of a lot of our emotions, for better or worse, and then we extended in totally nutty, abstract, novel directions, just scattered over space and time. Now, what, maybe that, that answers this next question. I mean, what, what do you want people to take from this? Well, <laughs> maybe one step more than the it's complicated, and maybe instead it's the it's complicated, so be real careful and cautious and humble before you decide you understand why somebody has just done the behavior that they did, especially when it's a behavior that we judge harshly. Um, but I think maybe in the larger sense, insofar as like this entire field would be called behavioral biology, um, I'm not suggesting that people should become behavioral biologists, because the main point is we already are. We're being behavioral biologists every time we serve on a jury, and we're making a judgment about what constraints there are in people's behavior, or every time we're voting for a politician based on one of their social stances, or every time we're deciding if the student in our classroom is lazy and unmotivated, or if they have sort of micro-malformations in their cortex that we call dyslexia, or every time we have a relative sunk in a depression, we have to decide, is this them indulging themselves, or is this a biochemical disorder? We're being behavioral biologists all the time, so I think what I'm hoping for out of a book like this is that people will be informed behavioral biologists. Well, the book is called Behave, The Biology of Humans at Our Best and Worst. Professor Sapolsky, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate that. Great. Thanks for having me on. All right. Take, take care. care. Robert Sapolsky, he is, uh, well, he's many things. He is a professor of biology at Stanford University, he is a professor of neurology and neurological sciences at Stanford University, he is also a professor of neurosurgery at Stanford University.
Uh, and as I mentioned, the book is called Behave, the Biology of Humans at Our Best and Worst. Our number here is 403-974-8255. My name is Rob Breckenridge. We are back with more right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.